Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the century-old cold case that inspired a hit TV series. But first, your true crime headlines. A courtroom outburst has led to a mistrial in the murder case of an Alabama man who was facing a possible death sentence for the killing of his six-year-old son. 50-year-old Mauricio Torres may now face a third trial in the death of his son Isaiah, who died of sepsis after being sexually assaulted with a stick on a camping trip with his family in 2015. Torres admitted to abusing his son, but claimed that his wife, Kathy, was responsible for the boy's death. Kathy Torres pleaded guilty to capital murder in 2017 and is serving a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Torres was first convicted of capital murder in 2016 and sentenced to death, but his conviction was overturned after the Arkansas State Supreme Court decided that because the camping trip happened in another state, it could not be used as the basis for a capital murder conviction. Prosecutors in the second trial used different evidence of prolonged abuse to make their case, and Torres was again found guilty. During the sentencing phase of his second trial, his adult stepson was testifying to the abuse he had suffered at the hands of his stepfather. When prosecutors asked him a question about sexual abuse, he lunged at the defendant, leaping over the court reporter and running toward the defense table before being restrained by bailiffs. The judge decided that the incident would be impossible for jurors to disregard and that they could no longer sentence Torres fairly He dismissed them and declared a mistrial in the case. Prosecutors asked the judge to uphold the jury's guilty verdict and bring in a new jury just to decide his sentence. A hearing has been scheduled for later this month. The grandparents and teenage uncle of a 12-year-old Montana boy are facing charges for his death, which prosecutors say was caused by their repeated abuse of the boy during the two years that he had been in their care. 12-year-old James Alex Hurley had been living with his grandparents and other relatives, including his 14-year-old uncle, since the death of his father two years ago. Hurley, who was 5 foot 3 inches tall and weighed around 100 pounds, died early last month of head trauma after a fight with his uncle, who is 6 feet tall and weighs 300 pounds. The 14-year-old admitted to kicking his nephew in the head repeatedly during the fight, which occurred shortly before his death. After the boy's death, investigators uncovered evidence of repeated abuse by Hurley's 14-year-old uncle as well as Hurley's grandparents, 47-year-old James Sasser Jr. and 48-year-old Patricia Batts. Both Sasser and Batts were charged with felony murder. Prosecutors requested a higher bail for Batts, who they believed to be more culpable for Hurley's death. The 14-year-old uncle has been charged with deliberate homicide and is being held in a juvenile detention facility. A hearing has been scheduled for July to decide whether or not he will be tried as an adult for his nephew's murder. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the story of Hazel Drew. But first, a quick break. True crime is my passion, but sometimes even I need a break from all the court transcripts and autopsy reports. 
So when I feel like I need a mental palate cleanser, I play Best Fiends. Best Fiends engages my brain with challenging but fun puzzle games and beautifully animated, adorable characters. The game is simple. The good guys are the bugs and the bad guys are the slugs. Complete the puzzles to defeat the slugs and unlock new fiends. Like Tantrum the Dung Beetle, Edward the Mosquito, Jean the Centipede, and my favorite, Pop the Axolotl. Travel with your fiends collecting treasure and rescuing new friends. With new monthly updates in over 3,000 levels, I know the journey will never get old. And Best Fiends doesn't require internet, so whether I'm in the car, on a plane, procrastinating, or trying to shake off those crime scene photos I just looked at, Best Fiends is my must-play. The app is free to download. Join me, Gene, Tantrum, and the other fiends to find out why this addictive five-star puzzler app has over a hundred million downloads. So if you're self-quarantining because you have coronavirus, or just need a break from the news cycle, download Best Fiends now, free on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Did you know that many conventional deodorants contain aluminum, which forms a plug in your sweat glands to keep you from sweating? And do you even know what a paraben is? It's time to go native. Native deodorant is made with safe ingredients that you can actually recognize, like coconut oil and shea butter. Making the switch to an aluminum-free deodorant doesn't mean you have to sacrifice on performance. Native keeps me smelling and feeling fresh all day long, with over 10 amazing scents for men and women, like their best-selling coconut and vanilla, cucumber and mint, and my favorite, lavender and rose. Plus, they offer limited edition seasonal scents, and of course, as always, an unscented option and baking soda-free formula for those with extra sensitivities. But Native isn't just deodorant. Now you can keep your teeth naturally sparkling with Native's toothpaste. Native's toothpastes use a special blend of naturally derived cleansers, flavors, and whiteners, and comes in two minty flavors, whitening wild mint and peppermint oil and detoxifying charcoal with mint, both with the option of fluoride or fluoride-free that will help keep your mouth squeaky clean. All native products are vegan and never tested on animals, so it's not just good for your body, it's good for everybody. Make the natural choice. Try native today risk-free with free shipping on every order and 30-day free returns and exchanges in the USA. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code MM20 during checkout. That's nativedeodorant.com promo code MM20 at checkout. Take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. Welcome back to Murder Minute. At around 7.30 p.m. on July 7, 1908, near the small resort town of Sand Lake, just outside of Troy in upstate New York, Frank Smith and Rudy Gundram were driving toward town 
when they spotted a young woman walking alone along the heavily wooded, remote stretch of Talberton Road. Hello, Frank, the girl cried out. In her gloved hand, the girl held a black-trimmed straw hat, decorated with three large plumes and a monogrammed pin with the letter H. Frank waved back. That's John Drew's oldest daughter, Frank remarked to Rudy as they passed. Frank Smith was a young, reportedly dim-witted teenage farmhand. Frank had met this girl before on a few occasions and had a bit of a crush on her. The wagon belonged to Rudy Gundrum, a 35-year-old charcoal peddler who picked Frank up on his way into town when Frank hailed him for a ride. The girl was Hazel Irene Drew, a beautiful and outgoing 20-year-old blonde with blue eyes and pompadoured hair who came from a large working-class family and had worked as a domestic servant for the city's wealthiest residents since the age of 14. But despite her modest upbringing and limited income, Hazel was always fashionably dressed. When she wasn't working, Hazel could most often be found in church or socializing with the other girls her age. On Saturday, July 11th, Frank Smith and some of his friends were hiking near Teal's Pond when they spotted a woman's body floating face down in the water near the shore. One of the boys, Gilbert Miller, gave the alarm. Gilbert thought he had seen something floating in the pond on Friday afternoon, but it was too far away, and he hadn't recognized it then as a body. Frank pulled the body from the water. It was so bloated and decomposed that Frank could scarcely recognize the girl that he had seen on the road just a few days ago. It was only after an examination of the gold fillings in her teeth that her own father could confirm her identity. It was Hazel Drew. Along the cow path heading to the pond, they found her black hat with the large plumes, the stick pin with the letter H, and Hazel's black gloves. At first, investigators believed that the girl had committed suicide. Hazel had just left her job as a governess and may have been running out of money. But an autopsy quickly ruled that theory out. A significant wound to the back of Hazel's head revealed that she had sustained a skull-crushing blow, and the absence of water in her lungs confirmed that she was on land when she died. Someone had murdered Hazel Drew and thrown her body into the pond. Why anyone should have killed Hazel is more than I can imagine, for she never had an enemy as far as I know, said one of Hazel's friends, Carrie Weaver, to the Albany Times Union. I can give no theory and offer no solution of the crime. She was an exceedingly fine girl, good habits, on this end of nice appearance. She was a blonde. The Careys always seemed to think much of her, as did everyone in the neighborhood. Suspicion initially fell upon 17-year-old Frank Smith. He had been one of the last to see Hazel alive, had been among those who found the body, and he'd made no secret of his feelings toward Hazel. But Frank's alibis around the time of the murder checked out, and there was no evidence to connect him to Hazel's death. 
When friends and family were asked if Hazel had any suitors, they said that they had never met one or heard her speak of one. Hazel, to my knowledge, has not had a beau for more than a year, Hazel's mother told the Albany Times Union. I asked her recently, haven't you got a fellow yet, Hazel? And she replied, no, I don't care for one. If I got one, some other girl would cut me out. Hazel was referring to her last love affair. She had been engaged to a man in 1906, but he had stopped calling on her when she became ill and married another girl in 1907. Her friend Carrie had never heard of a boyfriend either. Hazel was not a girl to run around much and never had a sweetheart. If she had, I think I would have known about it, for she made a confidant of me. The last I saw her was Friday night before the 4th. At this time, she told me that she was going to Lake George to spend Sunday. I think she went with some of the girls. I never saw her after that, for I came away on the following Monday. But a stash of letters and postcards discovered locked in one of Hazel's suitcases told a different story. Detectives found dozens of correspondences with men, identified only by their initials, suggesting dalliances and clandestine meetings. In one letter, an artist living in New York referred to Hazel as my lady of the blonde hair. The artist said that he was so smitten with Hazel that he had stolen her napkin and kept it as a souvenir. Six of the letters came from a man who signed his name by the initials C.E.S. and were sent from two cities that Hazel had recently visited, Boston and New York City. One of them read, Your merry smile and twinkling eyes torture me. Your face haunts me. Why can't I be contented again? You have stolen my liberty. Please, don't forget a promise to write. When I reach Albany again, I will meet you at the tavern. I must see you soon, or I'll die of starvation. The more the investigators uncovered, the more mysterious Hazel Drew became. Hazel Drew appeared to have been leading a double life, traveling extensively, dating several men, some of them married, and living well beyond her modest means as a domestic servant. Hazel's friend Carrie Weaver never could quite understand how her friend managed to live so well, to wear such stylish costumes, to take so many and so extended trips by rail and on first-class boats, and to enjoy so many luncheons all on the wages of a governess. I never saw her in the company of a man all the time I was in Troy, Carrie Weaver told detectives. And she told me on more than one occasion that she had no sweetheart. Really, Hazel? She could make a dollar go further than any woman I ever saw. As investigators interviewed everyone who had contact with Hazel in the weeks leading up to her death, a timeline began to emerge. At 11 p.m. on Friday, July 3rd, four days before Frank and Rudy saw Hazel walking along the road, Hazel drew 
arrived at the door of Mrs. Shoemaker, a dressmaker. Hazel was frantic. Clutching a bundle of newly purchased fabric with payment in hand, Hazel begged Mrs. Shoemaker to make her a new shirtwaist, explaining that she had Fourth of July weekend plans to visit Lake George and needed it desperately. Mrs. Shoemaker gave in, sat down at her sewing machine, and made the shirtwaist for Hazel. But Hazel never went to Lake George. And a week later, her body was pulled from Teal's Pond, wearing that very shirtwaist. Though Hazel had been planning her trip to Lake George for a month, and had told her friend Carrie, her family, and her employers about her plans, something went wrong. She instead spent the 4th of July weekend in Troy with her Aunt Minnie Taylor and her cousins. Then, at 10 a.m. on the morning of July 6th, Hazel abruptly quit her job, packed her belongings, and left. Her employers were shocked. Hazel had never mentioned to anyone that she was dissatisfied in her employment, nor had her employers ever been dissatisfied with Hazel. At 11.30 a.m. that same day, Miss Mary Robinson spotted Hazel holding a suitcase at the Troy Union Station. She asked me where I was going, and I told her my destination, Mary Robinson told the district attorney. Then I asked her where she was going, and she said, Oh, down the river. This was so evasive that I asked her where she was going down the river, and she said, Perhaps as far as New York. Just then a train was called, and Hazel went to the ticket window and bought the ticket, and then went out to the train shed. But the only train that left Troy at that hour was the Albany local. Two hours later, Hazel was again spotted back in the train station in Troy. This time, she wasn't carrying her suitcase. Hazel was again seen the following day on July 7th at Union Station, where she checked her suitcase. Police later recovered the suitcase from the station and inside found a toothbrush, underwear, a nightgown, a comb, a kimono robe, and a handbag containing a heart-shaped locket, a handkerchief, and a personal from a Troy newspaper dated October 7, 1907, which read, Edward Lavoyer has departed for Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he will remain all winter. Hazel's whereabouts the night of Monday, July 6th, remain a mystery. The next time she may have been seen after checking her suitcase at the station was on the afternoon of July 7th. At around 3 p.m., an old farmer, Peter Kipperly, boarded a trolley car in Avril Park and noticed a young woman sitting in front of him with a tall, slim young man. Later, when Peter saw the photographs of Hazel Drew, he believed that this was the same young woman and went to the district attorney. The young man had an intelligent face, Peter recalled. He was very attentive to the young woman who held a large black straw hat in her lap. The young man never took his eyes off her. It's unclear if the woman Peter Kipperly saw was in fact Hazel Drew. The young man was never identified 
and no other witnesses recalled seeing Hazel Drew that afternoon, not until Frank Smith and Rudy Gundrum saw Hazel walking alone along the road later that evening. Hazel hadn't sent word to any of her friends or family that she intended to visit them that day. But based on the direction that she was walking, she could only have been headed to two places. Hazel's maternal uncle, William Taylor, lived near Teal's Pond, and Frank and Rudy were under the impression that Hazel was on her way to pay him a visit. But Hazel's uncle William told detectives that if Hazel had been on her way, she never showed up. The uncle was subjected to a searching examination by Detective Kay and Officer Powers, the New York Times reported. And although he stoutly denied seeing his niece, the examiners are not satisfied with his answers. They learned that this uncle and the girl's father were not on the best of terms. About two years ago, Miss Drew's father owned the farm now occupied by the uncle. Taylor is subject to fits of melancholy, and last winter after his wife died, he attempted to commit suicide by cutting the arteries in his wrists. But Uncle William's house was not the only place Hazel may have been headed. On July 29, 1908, detectives Powers and Unser reported to District Attorney O'Brien that they had found two new witnesses who were expected to shed light on the mysterious murder of Hazel Drew, whose body was found in Teal's Pond, the New York Evening World reported. One of the witnesses is known to be Willie Drew, the little brother of the dead girl, who at the time of the murder was staying at the farmhouse of Mrs. Lippy Sawalski on Bear Road, about two miles from Teal's Pond. The other witness is Mrs. Sawalski's son, a big, muscular chap of 20, who is regarded as being somewhat lacking in intelligence. The detectives told District Attorney O'Brien that they had learned enough during their investigations yesterday and last night to convince them that Hazel was bound for the Sawalski home to see her brother on the night of the murder, July 7th, and that she was intercepted and led to the pond where she was put to death. Seven-year-old Willie had first stayed at the home of their uncle, William Taylor, but left and went to stay with the Sawalskis because he and his uncle didn't get along. Hazel was devoted to Willie, and he believed that she may have been on her way to say goodbye. I went to the officers today and I told them all I knew about my sister's murder. That wasn't much either, Willie told a reporter for the Evening World. I told them I knew Hazel would never have gone away without telling me goodbye. I'm sure she was on her way to Mrs. Sawalski's when she started up the road that leads past the pond. She had no other friends in the neighborhood. What sort of fellow is Mrs. Sawalski's son? A detective asked the boy. He's big and naughty, Willie answered. Willie then told detectives of Sawalski's cruelties to animals on the farm. At first, the family claimed that Sawalski was at home at the time of the murder. The Sawalski boy told the detectives, I went to Troy on July 6th come, but I was not away from the home that night or the next. 
I did not know Hazel Drew's body had been found until the following Monday, when Willie, who had been staying at our house, told me he was going to Troy to help you look for the murderer. But another source claimed that Sawalski had left the farm that night and met with Frank Smith. Either before or after, Frank passed Hazel Drew along the road. Both the Sawalski boy and Hazel's uncle William Taylor were investigated as suspects in the murder, but both had alibis and were eventually cleared of suspicion due to lack of any direct evidence. Investigators were never able to identify the man who wrote to Hazel under the initials CES. But police investigated several other possible suspects. Among them were a Troy dentist who had allegedly once proposed to Hazel, Dr. Edward Knopf, who was married. A train conductor who Hazel was suspected to have been seeing. And Henry Camrath, a local millionaire who was rumored to have been holding orgies and keeping sex slaves at his resort in the mountains near Teal's Pond. But no arrests were ever made. The funeral of Hazel Drew was held this afternoon at Avril Park in a downpour of rain, wrote the New York Times. There was a large gathering of the curious to witness the burial. William Taylor was of the number. He did not accompany the body to the cemetery at Barbersville, but returned to Crape's Hotel at Sand Lake, where he said he had not seen his niece since last winter. He said he thought the girl did not care much for the company of men, but expressed his belief that she had met someone by appointment and had gone to Teal's Pond, intending to come to his house later. When investigators failed to apprehend a suspect in Hazel Drew's murder, New York's yellow press, equivalent to the tabloids of today, criticized the investigation. Speculation that Hazel had been involved with some local businessmen, including one who owned the funeral home, fueled reports that the autopsy had been mishandled, that Hazel may have been pregnant, and were swiftly followed by demands that Hazel's body be exhumed. But the press didn't just attack the investigation. Hazel Drew herself was blamed as well. Hazel was a flirt, one reporter coldly wrote, suggesting that her extensive travels, meeting different men, led to her own demise. The papers printed theories that Hazel was secretly working as a prostitute was murdered by one of her clients and said that the local police were either too incompetent or worse, didn't care enough to pursue them. After just a month, investigators had given up the search for a suspect and by July 31, 1908, the coroner's inquest simply concluded that a, quote, blow on the head from some blunt instrument in some manner unknown had caused Hazel Drew's death. As the case went cold, newspapers derided the district attorney. His office will now draw a veil over the tragedy, wrote the Evening Star in Washington, D.C. And unless by some magic chance the murderer delivers himself up, 
allow it to remain forever a mystery. And they were right. Hazel Drew's case faded first from the papers and then from memory, kept alive over the decades only in ghost stories and the memories of elderly locals. Sand Lake resident Betty Calhoun passed the local lore onto her two grandsons, telling them stories of murder and the young woman whose spirit haunted the mountains around Teal's Pond. One of those grandsons, Mark Frost, grew up to become the co-creator of David Lynch's 1990s hit television series, Twin Peaks. In 2013, Frost revealed that it was his grandmother's stories about Hazel Drew that had been the inspiration for Twin Peaks' central character, Laura Palmer, a teenage prom queen with a blonde updo whose body washes ashore, turning a small town upside down and revealing her double life. The inspiration for the television series sprang from a nightmarish little bedtime story my grandmother Betty Calhoun planted in my ears as a young boy, Mark Frost wrote in a local Sand Lake newspaper. Betty, whose interest in the facts was, at best, glancing, framed this tale more along the lines of a cautionary ghost story, don't go out into the woods at night, etc. Some 20 years later, half-remembered details of this sad tale swam through my subconscious during the creation of a similarly doomed character named Laura Palmer. It seemed to be kind of a hastily conducted investigation, and because she was a person from not a prominent family, I think you could fairly say, and because there was very little sympathy for female victims of that sort in this time, she may have gotten the short shrift. In 2017, the return of Twin Peaks sparked new interest in Hazel Drew's story among fans of the show. And now, over a century later, Hazel Drew's murder is getting a second look. Author Ron Hughes published his book, Who Killed Hazel Drew? Unraveling Clues to the Tragic Murder of a Pretty Servant Girl, in 2017. And now, filmmaker John Holzer, who lives just a mile away from Teal Pond, is bringing the cold case to life in his documentary, Who Killed Hazel Drew? The Sand Lake Murder That Inspired Twin Peaks, set to premiere in 2020. This film is going to answer a lot of questions, Holzer said. Now, anytime you do that, you also open up a lot of new questions. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. For more information about Hazel Drew and John Holzer's film, visit hazeldrew.com.